0: Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Charlie Pickles, Managing Editor. Is Britain being led by a bluffocracy? Yes, is the resounding conclusion of a new book out by James Ball and Andrew Greenway. So the case for the prosecution. Politicians, civil servants and journalists are, more often than not, generalists, drawn from a narrow, privileged section of society. More likely than the general population to be privately and Oxbridge educated, with white males dominating. And unlikely to have had experience outside of these professions. Or to put it more crudely, the country is run by an elite bunch lacking the detailed knowledge you might expect of people taking hugely consequential decisions for the country. How to regulate AI, how to deliver Brexit, how to prevent cross-border cybercrime. Now may not be the time for the gentleman amateurs, as the book puts it. And yet, is it the job of politicians to be deep subject specialists? Don't civil service generalists help inject fresh thinking, allow policy dots to be connected across different specialisms? Aren't core skills anyway transferable? To discuss this, I am delighted to be joined by journalist and bluffocracy co author James Ball, and Unheard's associate editor, Peter Franklin. Before we delve into the meat of the topic, I think, though, we need to start with some confessions, which, James, you do in the book. Um, Also in the book, you refer to some YouGov polling, which found that 55% of people think that someone is unsuitable for office if they have never held a, quote, real job. And effectively, that means if they haven't worked in a job that isn't politics, think tanks or journalism, then they haven't had a real job and, and, and I think that probably applies to all three of us here so let me start with my own confession so uh, I have not held down in those terms a real job unless you could class consultancy as one and I think probably you would tack that onto the non-real job list so uh, my experience is in government think tanks uh, and journalism so I guess I'm at the heart of the bluffocracy. Uh, Peter what about you?
1: Yeah, um native of the Westminster village, um, sadly. Um, in my defence I would say that I didn't go to Oxbridge and I've got a science degree, so you know Suck that up, humanity <laughs> scraps.
0: Okay, James, I'm I'm afraid you are at the the the, the kind of the, the real kind of I, tip I, of I, the diplomacy. I, really
2: I don't even have a real journalism job, let alone a real job. Um, unless you can, you know, I, I worked at Tesco when I was 18. Yeah, I worked, um, I
0: worked at Boots and kind of summer that, jobs. Barely that yeah. um, yeah. yeah. No,
2: that's that's desperately fishing. Um, no, not not only have I been in the media bubble since graduating, uh, the course I graduated from was none other than PPE at Oxford, which is very much one of the villains of the book.
0: Okay so that's a great starting point for us so very briefly explain to us what does it mean to be part of the Bluffocracy you know what are the symptoms of the Bluffocracy?
2: Well given given our backgrounds Andrew is also a PPEist a co-author we've sort of got to say this book's more of a confession than an expose Um, and it's essentially that not only do we have a sort of cultural bias towards people who are generalists it's good talkers, you know, the right sort of chap with the right sort of chat, um, who can very quickly master the basics of a topic and sound convincing on it, but then who never get the real sort of knowledge. But what we think's beyond it, it isn't just a PPE rant, is that we've actually set up our institutions to favour those people and to actually punish uh, specific knowledge. If you want quick promotion as a minister, if you want quick promotion as a civil servant, if you want to be prominent as a journalist, the trick is not to specialise, and we say that's dangerous.
0: Okay, so let's start then with politicians who really do come in for it um, in the book, uh, and I'm sure in many ways for good reason, Um, but but specifically politicians that have made it onto the ministerial ladder, so either Secretary of State's running departments um, or kind of more junior ministers. What, James, is the problem here?
2: So I actually don't blame sort of politicians for being bluffers. Of anyone that we talk to, they're the ones with the best case for it. Their job is to communicate with the public and to sort of sell people on policies that often may be a bit, you know, a bit trickier than they look on the surface. The problem is that we, when you become a minister, you're in charge of some incredibly complex departments and issues. And... We don't really value people who grasp any of that. So they spend most of their time learning the very basics. And so you can take ministers that are regarded as quite competent and look at how they bounce around. You know, Saeed Javid started out as city minister, used to work in the city. That's quite a sensible move. But he then got moved to equalities, then DCLG, then business, now the home office, can you imagine any other profession allowing you sort of in the space of six years to be you know, a surgeon, then a lawyer, then a race car driver, you know, and then something else? It, we, we wouldn't do it. We sort of recognise that jobs with a lot less responsibility than being a minister require expert knowledge. And because we do it in this mad way, because you have to be an MP to be a minister here, we have, you know, a pool of nearly 50 million adults in the UK and 20 cabinet jobs. If we could pick from the whole country we'd have 2.5 million people for each cabinet job. We could really get someone who knows that field. Because Theresa May has to pick from 300 MPs, she's got 15 candidates per job uh, just for the cabinet. By the time you're at full ministers, it's one in four. And so we're giving really important jobs to often just whoever is in a suit and doesn't hate the PM too much.
0: But Peter... I mean, is that a fair comparison? Because we're not asking the Secretary of State for Health to go and perform surgery in a hospital. You know, we're not asking the Secretary of State or or a minister in the Department for Education to go and teach. Um, So how far is it reasonable? How far is it needed for a politician in a ministerial role to have that deep specialism, um, to have that deep knowledge? Or, Or is that not really the role of the civil servants, whereas the politicians are there to set the vision?
1: I think vision is important, but to have a vision that's worth it, you you, you need a real love of the subject. You've got to have a, a real bee in your bonnet about it. And I think part of the problem is that ministers will breeze in from somewhere else without ever really having particularly thought about the subject or really be caring about it that much. But when you do get a minister who might not be you know um you know someone like michael go for instance um controversial minister at education but he made changes right no one's doubting that that he did challenge the 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 so called blob that that was running policy he was an effective minister um but he came to the job with with a real passion for the subject but
0: surely partly how he could do that was was by Not, James, being a specialist steeped in the kind of, you know, the sort of group think of coming from an area. I think
2: think you have a lot of areas where you have big gaps in policy, but, you know, I tend to think statistically. And I just think if someone comes in with a poor vision of what they're doing, they can implement things badly or they can make decisions that in the end... You know, a surgeon, if they are incompetent, may kill three or four people more than a better surgeon would. If ministers allocate money in the wrong place or sort of don't understand their areas or don't understand the issues, they could put far more lives at risk. Now, I'm sure that's not how they think about it because you'd drive yourself mad. But I think we should value expertise. And I think most countries try to. You know, a lot of countries don't appoint from their legislature And it sort of would seem mad to, and it does seem mad to a lot of people who didn't grow up here that someone can be running the health service one day and the armed forces the next. I mean, because we're used to it, it feels okay. But when you step back, you sort of go, why on earth did we ever think this system was a good idea?
1: Could I just sort of come, come back on that and say, give the example of Theresa May? I think she is the first ever prime minister to be a geography graduate, right? You would think that given the housing crisis, a geography graduate would be in a really good position to know what was wrong with the planning system and especially with spatial policy like the London Greenbelt, right? In fact, Theresa May is one of the big obstacles to reform of housing and planning policy. So I'm not sure that expertise... Um, or at least theoretical expertise necessarily makes the difference that James would like it to do. But I think that passion for a subject does.
2: I think real expertise, though, does require passion and does require you to have worked on it. You know, uh, if Theresa May had been someone who had worked in housing or local groups and that for 20 years, I would then class her as an expert, just having studied it sort of as a way to be in Oxford, 30 years previous i'm not sure i would class her as an expert um i mean but i i do i do absolutely i think agree with you that expertise isn't enough you do need someone who has a plan has a vision has some passion um but i would like both i don't think that sets the bar too high
1: it would be they they need access
2: to it certainly
0: let's think though um of the other factors that might also come into play here. So, you know, let's say we have an individual who has a decent grasp of their brief. You know, let's not get too excited. They're not an expert, probably, if they're drawn from the current cohort of politicians. But, you know, let's say they've got a decent um, grasp of the brief, as Peter's saying, they've got a passion for improving things and changing lives. What about, though, the grenade that number 10 throws in and says, no, 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 no. we need a quick win, so we're going to do this policy, get on with it. What, What about the role of um, the Treasury uh, in policymaking that sort of hangs as this kind of black cloud. I mean, are we are we fixating too much on individual ministers and not the system within which they're working? And Peter, you've you've worked in government. You know, does that sound familiar to you?
1: It certainly does. And uh, reading uh, uh, the book, I see the reference to junior ministers that aren't empowered to make a difference. They're just they're expected to. Um, process a policy that is decided elsewhere i agreed with that but it's it, it's it's worse than you say it's cabinet ministers too um you know y- you will in most of the cabinet roles the policy is mostly decided from two places number 10 and the treasury and there's very few cabinet ministers that are truly um uh masters of their own destiny and and that i think is the problem you know it doesn't matter that they if they have knowledge or not They don't have the input into the major decisions.
0: I can certainly remember when I was in uh, DWP, the (laughs) Department for Work and Pensions, which is is all the kind of welfare and and benefits. Um, And, you know, half the policies in the coalition government that, that we had to implement came directly from George Osborne. You know, they weren't things that we believed in. They weren't things we wanted to do. We pushed back heavily against the Treasury on doing them. And yet that's where the power was, as Peter's saying.
2: I mean, it's always hard in politics to separate cause and effect. And uh, I think one of the things we really try and discuss in the book is this chronic short-termism. And I think the short-termism helps fuel actually Number 10 and Treasury controlling it. Mm -hmm. You know, we often talk about Britain being too centralised. People tend to be talking about devolution when they say that, and I'm not sure I agree with them there. Where we are far too centralised is that we don't even spread power across 20 ministries. It is very much in there, but it's there because they want to feed the beast, as you actually said in the introduction. It's about wanting to feed a lobby, which is shallow and quick and full of generalists, and then sort of turn it back on ministers. And if you want to be able to have a new policy or a new thing and a turn of a head, you actually aren't going to want even the expertise of your departments. You know, what you end up with in practice isn't even the the cabinet minister and the civil service. It's the number 10 policy unit that run the country. And that's not ultimately going to be a good idea. Like the people who get in those teams are incredibly bright but there's not very many of them. And I see a little uh, equivocation there.
0: <laughs> well, maybe some of them are. A lot of them are, are also just the people who are willing at that point in time to go into government. Uh, and when you, as a government goes on and on, that that, that group of people, the pool of talent available uh, arguably gets smaller. But I want to um, also, James, ask you about this question of diversity within politics. And, and it, it's something that kind of runs through the book. The fact that um, in journalism, politics and civil service, all three of those areas that you talk about focus on. Um, There is a lack of diversity, though probably improving one. But we don't just mean in terms of ethnicity and gender, but actually in in diversity of background and experience.
2: Yeah. And I think think the ethnicity and gender are the sort of visible side of diversity, and they are very important. And they actually do affect the sort of broader definition of diversity that we try and get onto. Um, And that's this sort of sense of diversity of thought in a sense that we have a lot of arts graduates. If you didn't do PPE, you usually did English or history. And firstly, just to tackle a lot of the issues that come through, we want more scientists, we want more engineers, and we don't just want them in the junior advisory role buried away. There's, I mean, there's a lot of expertise in the civil service, but it tends to be junior staff who aren't listened to. You know, they need to be in leadership roles. Um, but we also, a lot of things that government does wrong, it never intended to do. Um, You know, you look at something like universal credit and people just didn't realize changing payment schedules really matters when you mess up. Um, A thing that's amazed me for about 20 years in government, they've never quite been able to bridge the gap effectively between your benefits stopping on the first day of a new job and you not getting a pay for 30 days. And a lot of people who would have worked for the sake of that 30 days not being able to pay rent, eat or pay bills have stayed jobless. And if you had more people who'd grown up in families like that, those issues would be much more apparent. And there's all sorts of other ones I'm sure you would both be able to point to, where actually the lack of diversity of background, it's not just a fairness issue or an equality issue or a lefty liberal issue. We would have better government and better outcomes with more people in the room.
0: I certainly remember sitting, um, having a conversation with a number of political advisers about uh, education in the state education system. And I was the only person in the room who had gone to a comprehensive school. And it was sort of this bizarre experience of talking to these people who just clearly had no grasp of what, you know, kind of a state school was like or some of the challenges that the the young people in state schools might be facing. Um, Peter, is that something which rings a bell with you?
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, the the minister that I, I have worked with most in the past, and I'm biased here, but his name's Greg Clark, a um, uh, very effective minister, in my opinion, uh, someone who really made a big impact on devolution, in getting power pushed out of Whitehall and to cities. Um, he comes from a very sort of working class background, grew up in Middlesbrough, um, there's not that many sort of working class Northerners in politics, certainly not at a senior level, not, not in the Conservative Party. and But you, you get one in a position of power and and they push for change. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, diversity of background, and it's not just tick box, civil service, diversity, unit, diversity, but things about class and region and accent and all of those things... Um, is really important, and um, I, I thought that, you know, my experience of the civil service was that this is a group of people that, that they're all the same. They I, really are.
2: I think if you had more northerners in either the media or uh, in government, the the state of northern trains and transport would be a much bigger issue. Yes. I mean, it's genuinely astonishing how much coverage and how much political time you see on southern Southern railways and southeastern Compared to the state of North, the North's infrastructure, it's genuinely stunning.
1: Yes, but it took decades to even get a sort of tra- a, a northern-based transport agency that was independent of 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 Whitehall. You know what? What on earth is it about the culture of this country's governance that allows that stops basic devolution from happening for for generations, literally?
0: Great example there. Peter, we're going to be looking at the civil service in the second half of this discussion. Uh, we'll be back in just a second.
1: Hello, I'm Peter Franklin, co-presenter of Unheard Shorts, a bite-sized podcast about big ideas. Too busy for in-depth journalism? Then listen to us unpack the articles that really matter without wasting your time. Unheard Shorts: Going Deeper Faster. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, so we have picked apart our politicians and why our current structure doesn't work particularly well. But what about the civil service? Now, um, for those people who are perhaps are a little less familiar with what the civil service does, this is really the heart of the government machine. You know, this is these are the people that are really doing the nuts and bolts design of Public policies. So, what's going to happen in the health service? You know what the education system looks like. How we deal with crime, um, defence, etc. Um, and then come up with a delivery plan for actually executing. And James, you point out that you know there is this kind of um, common view put forward that the civil service is a sort of Rolls Royce service i.e it's fantastic it's top-notch it's top of the range uh, but you slightly uh, wittily retort that yes it is if we're thinking about a 150 year old car what do you mean by that <laughs>
2: well it's 150 years since the civil service uh, last had any decent reform um i should flag in 1968 there was a big report that listed almost every criticism that we do in the book uh, which the civil service very smoothly and uh, you know speedily uh, dropped.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> <to> the table, <laughs> absolutely
2: nothing with. And I actually, the politician thing is arguable. You can sort of make a case for their amateurs, almost they're setting the direction outside to see more of the game. I don't believe that. But the thing that makes that argument work is this idea of a permanent civil service. They don't come and go. With ministers, they don't come and go. With governments, they are the sort of neutral people who, as you say, get the job done. So they're meant to be the experts. They're the sort of people behind the scenes that keep the wheels on the wagon. And there are a lot of specialists who sort of stay in a fairly junior job, usually in a different building to the minister, and know every detail about a certain area of government. They're not the ones that have the ear of the ministers, and they're not the ones that tend to shape the decisions. So the civil service that's meant to be where your institutional knowledge is, where your expertise is, that can spot it, are often moving around as much or more than the ministers that they serve. Um, Andrew, who I um, wrote the book with, uh, joined the senior civil service, the top grade of it, by 27. And he did it by jumping around six different departments very opportunistically, he knew that you need a bit of time in a ministerial private office. He knew that you needed some time in the cabinet office. But then to get the step up, he needed to move into a less glamorous department. And so, you know, when he was doing those, did he care about any of the briefs he followed? Or was he like knowing that he was going to be there for nine months?
0: But did that make him worse at his job? I mean, would he say I was a bad civil servant because of that? Uh,
2: I think he would say some of the policy areas could have been better served. Um I mean, I will say he's a bad civil servant for that (laughs) and, you know, live with the consequences. But, um, you know, it's built into civil service culture that if you want to rise, you need to do that. The fast stream, which is sort of where you can join as a graduate and you're sort of on track for management. You know, it's sort of how you flag yourself in it. You have to do four different postings in two years. If that doesn't sort of institute a short termism and an idea that you have to move to thrive into you, I don't know what does. And so you end up with sort of two problems with the civil service. You have the kind of internal politics of how you rise in it. And then almost the name warns you of the other problem. You can have someone quite experienced who's managing a huge budget, might have a few hundred staff, and who is ostensibly quite senior, who will never come into contact with even their junior ministers. Um, And then you'll have someone younger, on a lower salary, with no staff, will be writing minutes and memos and prep for debates and they're the ones who will rise, they're the ones who will have time with the ministers, they're the ones who will do it. And so you've got this odd thing where actually the civil service, the institution that's meant to be about managing and running the country, doesn't really reward people who manage and run the country.
0: Was that your experience, Peter?
2: Well, I, th- I think the, the issue that
1: what, I think what surprised me most was just how much everyone moves around all the time they they don't stay in post for very long um so they don't have um i don't think they have what Nassim Taleb calls skill in the game um in terms of what they're responsible for right so it can all go wrong in a couple of years time doesn't matter because they'll be somewhere else what they do where they do have skill in the game however is upsetting other civil servants further up the chain of command because these people might determine may well be determining their future promotional prospects so i think you've got the worst of both worlds um no kind of direct um, consequences for what you get wrong in what you're managing at the time but a disincentive to taking on um other bits of the civil service that are failing?
0: But isn't there a broader cultural question here, um, which is more around, and certainly I, would say I experienced this when I was in government, that there's just a general reluctance to sort of be accountable, to kind of take responsibility. And there's, you know, I can remember pretty much every email I would receive would have sort of 25 other people copied in, I mean, at minimum. Um, and there's a sort of kind of covering your ass kind of approach to this. Um, and that's not necessarily about moving round. That's, that's the culture that's being set.
1: Oh yeah, it's a hive mind, without a doubt. Um, and there isn't you don't really get um, the sort of leaders that you might expect in a business environment. Everyone's very meek and mild superficially. There's a lot of passive aggression, <laughs> but not much sort of aggressive aggression. I never saw anyone shouted at or anything like Not that I'm suggesting that's a great way to manage people, but no one ever seemed to get that into things.
2: There was, there right. was sort of an interesting tale told to us around... Uh, how something like the Windrush scandal where sort of people with every legal right to be here who essentially had become British citizens after moving were being deported because of the hostile environment policy. And uh, this sort of former Home Office civil servant was telling us, well, everyone who will have been involved to the creation of that policy, there's every chance someone in a room will have raised it and they'll have had some kind of plan or thought in place. But because of the people who do these high-profile high policies. They move on to the next one as soon as it changes. And so they might still be in the department, but they'll, be, they'll have had three or four other jobs since then. But they will still be in the civil service. And she was sort of saying what's odd is that it will never have entered the mind of anyone to try and contact the people who were working on it at the time mm. to see if they'd had any thought or any way to tackle it or any issues. It's, it's not only... Are you not accountable for the decisions? No one even thinks to consult you. Once you've moved, your role kind of confines you. You are working on what you are working on now. And so this thing that's meant to have this institutional knowledge and expertise, and certainly, you know, as you were saying, doesn't seem to reward individualism, doesn't get the good sides of a hive mind. It just gets bogged down but never seems to learn anything.
1: Yes, There's no institutional memory that's that's the really shocking thing that's the thing you'd really expect well, from what what everyone believes the yes. civil
2: service is isn't it you yeah. know it's the famous files and yet
0: But they've destroyed libraries
1: within each department they're, they're, <laughs> they, they all get
0: destroyed but, but there is a flip side to kind of institutional memory which is that and again i had this experience where people who've been in the department 20 30 even more years have become very almost native in their sort of world view and actually that can be highly damaging when you're trying to view a quite a sticky problem from a fresh perspective and and you do need the people who are going to come in and say I have no baggage here you know I have no history of being involved in constructing the predecessor to this policy you know you need the people who are going to come in and tear things up and shake things up
2: I, I absolutely agree and I mean I should stress what we conclude in the book. Um, I mean, for anyone who's seen the uh, Avengers film, I I sort of propose a bit of a Thanos solution. I don't want to get rid of all the generalists. I want to get get rid of about half of them. Uh, You know, off to lovely new jobs or to live on a farm in the countryside with your childhood pets. Um, But it's not... We do actually need generalists, just like we need outside thinkers. You know, all teams work with a good balance of different characters. What we're really trying to say in the book is that, you know, if it's a seesaw, the generalists and the chancers and the quick talkers are very much sitting heavily on one side. And we just need to try and make a bit of space and even it back up a bit.
0: Have we also, Peter, got a problem of quality, though, on top of that?
2: Well, um, <laughs> I need to be careful, here because I'm talking about former
1: colleagues. And there are some really good, impressive people Um, in the civil service and they're not just in it for themselves for their own career advancement there's people with real sort of um uh investment personal investment in the common good right and some of them are really intelligent thoughtful people and that intelligence and thoughtfulness isn't always um doesn't always have the the best use made of it There's some not so good people as well. And James is absolutely right with saying, you know, we're in London. We're, you know, arguably the greatest city in the world, Uh, certainly a global city with endless career opportunities for bright young people. Um, There's a lot of there's a lot of competition for for the um, the cream of the crop. And, and, and the civil service doesn't always win.
0: Well, that seems like a perfect point to end on, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you, James and Peter, for a fantastic discussion. And I do recommend getting the book, uh, Out Now, Bluffocracy, by James and Andrew. Thank you also for listening. Do check out the website. Um, we have a piece on there from James, which you can go and read, as well as many other interesting articles and columns. Also, do subscribe if you haven't already. You can do that on whatever the platform is that you get your podcast from. I've been Charlie Pickles. You've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week.